What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. We are now wrapping up our series on forgiveness called Forgive and Forget. We've spent the first two weeks looking at forgiveness and found how important it is, not just for others, but for ourselves. We are ridding ourselves of poison when we choose forgiveness. And last week we saw how Jesus made the point that over and over, whether it's when we swear an oath, or someone takes advantage of us, or we are confronted by an enemy, in all these situations we are to show mercy. We are merciful because God shows mercy on us, period. That's what Jesus meant when he said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Show mercy to others, no matter who, no matter what the situation is. And now we continue the series looking at the last part of our series title, which is about forgetting. Should we forget the things that others do to us? Should we just move along with our lives as though nothing ever happened? Plenty of people have wondered about this and whether it really makes sense for our lives. Do we just move along? It can seem quite unfair to do that, can it? So let's dive in. Let's look at our scripture reading today, read by Paul, uh, to see if we can find an answer. We are still in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' most challenging words about how we are to live our lives. He has just taught the disciples the Lord's Prayer and that they should seek their reward not on earth, but from God in heaven. And now he transitions to what, for many of us, is literally the most difficult thing to do. He tells us, don't worry. Our scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear, Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith. Therefore do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble 
is enough for today. And from Micah 7, 18 and 19, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of your possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in showing clemency. He will again have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, make us an inclusive community passionately following Jesus Christ. As we struggle with forgiveness and forgetting our sins or the ones others have committed against us, help us to see the path forward. Help us to experience your kingdom and your righteousness. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A Jack Hitt was 11 years old when he was living in South Carolina. His friends had found an abandoned piece of property that had overgrown weeds and a half-demolished brick wall. They decided to make it a club and hung out there all the time. One day, one of his friends decided to draw a picture on the brick wall with some paint. That led to another friend writing the name of a girl he liked at school on the wall, And then a few days later, Jack decided he would write some words on there too, curse words that he wouldn't even say out loud. A few days later after school, the police showed up at Jack's home. They talked to his mother. Then his father had to come home early from work to talk to the police. It turned out the police had seen the graffiti and traced it back to Jack. Jack's father called him into his study and asked him, did you paint some words on that brick wall? And Jack just broke down crying. He was an inconsolable mess, but his father pressed him, what did you write on that wall? And Jack said something like, H-E double hockey sticks, and his father hung his head in shame. Then he asked him again, did you write anything else? And Jack couldn't bring himself to say the words, especially not in front of his father. He could paint it, but not say it. That was going too far, he said to his dad. But his father pressed him again, saying, Well, can you tell me the first letter? And Jack did, saying the first letter in one word and then another. Jack could see how what he had written left his father overwhelmed. His dad sat in silence for several minutes. Then finally he spoke, telling his son how when he married Jack's mother, it united two families together, and they were honorable people. They always worked hard so they could hold their head up high, and when they walked by, someone would say, there goes a hit. They are a good family. But he told Jack that what he had done that day did more to damage his family's reputation than anything he could think of. Then he told Jack, that is your punishment. You can go now. Wow, what a a heavy burden to carry at just 11 years old. And sadder still, just a few short months later, Jack's father died. This was one of the very last memories he had of his father, telling him what shame he had brought to the family name. Years later, there was a family reunion, and Jack had never told this story to anyone in his family, but one night it was late, and everyone else had gone to bed, so it was just the siblings together, 
And he decided that it was the right time to share this burden. And he starts to tell them about the wall and the swear words and how his father told him how much he had damaged the family's reputation. And his siblings start shrieking. They are howling with laughter. They start saying one by one how each one of them had done something that their father had declared the most damaging thing anyone had ever done to the family name. One sister was caught uh, with a boy. Another had to be picked up in Atlanta for shoplifting. Story after story revealed that this heavy burden Jack had carried for years was just a technique his dad had used to keep his children behaving properly. Jack wasn't an embarrassment to the family. He was part of the family, united by their father's very memorable way of punishing his children. We all have things that stick with us, things that are so memorable, especially if they are really bad. Sometimes it's funny things like how my wife Emily and I uh, have a rule uh, we came up with just before we got married. It was that we were not allowed to talk about hot dogs at our wedding. Uh, that's because we had just gone to a wedding where one person gave the most rambling wedding vows we'd ever heard, and we thought, let's not do that at our wedding. It was unforgettable, but in the worst way possible. What is more disturbing, though, is when bad things happen and we very much want to forget them, but just don't seem to be able to. Ever have a, a sleepless night? Ever want to just move on to the next day and pretend like today didn't happen? Yet we can't sleep. At times, things can be so bad we just can't seem to forget them. We can't move on because something so bad is so memorable. I've wondered about this at times. Why can't I forget those terrible things? Some folks say it's part of negativity bias and that our brains are designed to remember when bad things happen so we don't put ourselves in the same kind of danger again. I can understand that. It makes sense. We shouldn't keep putting ourselves in harm's way over and over. If a bad thing happens, I want my brain to tell me, don't go there, don't get yourself into that situation again. The problem, though is when something bad happens over here and we bring it into this new and different situation there. It's like the dog that always barks at men who walk into their home because, well, they were abused by a man. Sure, it makes sense that the dog barks, but it's not like that reaction is helping the dog. Everyone, including the dog, would be better off if they didn't bark. I'm thinking of the person who tells you, you remind me of my father, or you remind me of my sister. The first question that comes to mind is, what kind of relationship did you have with them? Was it a good one, or is your brain sending you signals to watch out, don't get stuck in danger because you had a bad experience with someone like this before? There's a lot more I could say about this, but in general, the more we dwell on a memory, good or bad, the stronger it becomes. Sometimes it feels like it would just be better to forget all these bad things and just face every day with a clean slate. There's actually a drug that some doctors prescribe that removes bad memories. It lets you stay in a relaxed state and reduces long-term fear. I would imagine there's more than a few people that would be interested in something like that to get over some of the most difficult memories. When it keeps you up at night, when you just can't get over it, maybe you need a prescription. 
I wonder, though, what Jesus would think about such solutions. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about these worries, maybe even hinting at these things that we can't seem to forget. This is a verse that I know many people hold dear in their hearts. When Jesus says, don't be anxious, they take it as a personal instruction. You, Jim, you, Sarah, you, Brian, need to stop being anxious. You might see threats everywhere, including from people that just simply remind you of a previous bad experience with someone. But Jesus says, don't be anxious. Would he want us to take a drug to do that, though? Is there a biblical way to get rid of anxiety? Actually, Jesus' words here are not quite about memories and people. He is talking much more specifically about possessions. He had just finished saying we need to give alms to the poor and not to be concerned about what we get back from other people. Our reward comes from heaven. And then he uses an interesting little play on words describing how if you have a single eye, your body will be full of light, but if you have a bad eye, it will be full of darkness. A single eye in ancient times meant a generous one, while a bad eye would mean it was either diseased or stingy. So he's saying if you hold on to your possessions, if your heart becomes stingy, then your heart will become full of darkness. You have to give. You have to let go. You can't serve God and money. You have to choose. So then he comes to worry, and he's saying, hey, don't worry about your possessions. God knows everything you need. You don't have to beg God for rain so you'll have food or beg for green grass to feed your animals so you can make clothing. God gets it. God knows what's going on in your life. Jesus says to pursue God, and then all these other things uh, will be taken care of. But at the very end, he says, so do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. God's got you, so just focus on today. That sounds a little like forgetting about the things in the past and not fretting about the things of tomorrow, doesn't it? Is that what Jesus is telling us? Just focus on the here and now. Somehow just make yourself forget. Maybe that's part of it. And there is some scripture people point to. A few weeks ago, as I was preparing for some of the details for this sermon series, I came across an article talking about the sea of forgetfulness. I've heard of this idea before. It's not super popular, but I knew it. And then the article said, there is no sea of forgetfulness. It's not in the Bible. And I thought, that's preposterous. I could find it in the Bible right now. So I looked it up. It's right there at the end of the book of Revelation. And I get to the chapter, and I read through it, and... I can't find it. There's a lake of fire and a flowing river, but not a sea of forgetfulness. Now I'm looking everywhere. Where is the sea of forgetfulness? And everything I'm finding says it doesn't exist. The closest thing is the verse we read today from Micah 7. The Lord will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Notice, though, it's not us who the Bible describes as forgetting It's God. God will forget every wrong we've done. God will not hold these things against us. 
So what then are we supposed to do? Are we stuck remembering all the ways we've hurt God and and people have hurt us or sinned against us? Are we stuck with no options then except taking a pill to make us forget? I think coupled with not carrying anxiety is this idea that in the end, we don't control the world around us. I had shared a couple of weeks ago that earlier in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says, we can't even control if the hairs on our head are black or white. We can't even stop someone from slapping us. All we can do is turn the other cheek. And then today's scripture says, can your worry add a single hour to your life? We know the answer is no. Worry can only shorten our lives, not extend it. Ultimately, we need to recognize that we are in God's hands and that sometimes bad things are going to happen to us. We can't stop it, but we can control how we respond to it. Mostly in this series, we've talked about an inner reflective forgiveness. Look inside yourself so you can get rid of the poison of resentment. But there is also an external thing that happens in forgiveness. Anger at wrongdoing or being hurt is a response. Be angry and sin not. Working on ways to help prevent abuse is okay when someone has hurt a person you love. Protecting your heart and mind after injury is the right thing to do. Working toward restorative justice and holding someone legally responsible for their crime are all appropriate external actions even as we forgive someone. We can even learn from the bad things that happen. But, as Jack Cornfield says, forgiveness is letting go of all hope of a better past. We can't change what's behind us. We don't have control over it. Now, maybe we can have some small effect on how things will turn out in the future, and I think we should work toward those things as we build better institutions and better systems to improve the world. But the most powerful example we have of how to respond to pain and injustice in this world is the one we have from Jesus himself. Jesus shows us that in the midst of sin committed against us, our best hope, the best impact we can have in this world is the one that comes through radical forgiveness that may even lead to self-sacrifice. We forgive even as it negatively impacts the entire trajectory of our lives. And we do it for the benefit of this world. Now, I can't point to a specific passage in the Bible that tells you how much of an impact being a martyr can have, but we can see it. We can see it in how Jesus transforms the lives of the disciples after his death and how they impact thousands of others. We can see it in the story of the church as they spread across the world and even in the midst of war and famine and terrible pain offer radical forgiveness that seems foolish to the world. But this action, this forgiveness, even to the point of harm to ourselves, it changes people. It changes how even the evildoer sees what they are doing to us. Maybe you remember how as Jesus was dying on the cross, even a Roman soldier saw it and said, truly this was the Son of God, that soldier with no biblical training, 
No knowledge of the one true God could see God at work in Jesus' self-sacrifice. God invites us to the very same kind of response. When we have been harmed and we can't let go of the pain, we aren't specifically trying to forget about it. We are healing from it. We are learning from it. And maybe even trying to improve the world by bringing some justice But our greatest impact happens when we recognize that we do not have control. Bad things will happen, and we lean wholly on the goodness of God to bring about his will in this world through us. Let's end with this. Thomas Beckett is one of the most famous martyrs of the Middle Ages of Europe. Uh, He became the Archbishop of Canterbury in England, and after his death was venerated to sainthood by the Catholic and Anglican Church faster than anyone in history. His story is one of conflict with the King of England, Henry II. Uh, Sometimes clergy were being tried for crimes, and when that happened, the church would conduct the trial. Punishment would almost always result in the clergy person being defrocked, but never included killing the person. Henry II, though, said if the person was defrocked and removed from the church, then they could be put on trial a second time by the secular courts. The result in the secular court almost always meant maiming and killing people. This kind of power would strike fear into the masses and mean the king could dictate just about anything he wanted to in the church. Thomas Becket thought this was wrong, and he argued strongly against the king. For months he stood against him, working to convince the other churches not to let the king do this, but in the end he lost and had to quickly flee to France. He lived there for years, waiting out the king who would kill because people, uh, kill people because they disagreed with him. Years later, the king offered a compromise with Becket that would let him return back to England, After only a few short months, Henry II committed crimes, and Becket excommunicated the king from the church. When the king heard it, he said, Who would let their lord be treated with such shameful contempt by a low-brow cleric? Several knights heard this, marched to Becket's church, and as Becket walked to the chapel for a time of prayer, the knights confronted him. They shouted, Where is Thomas Becket, traitor to the king and country? And Becket replied, I am no traitor, and I am ready to die. The knights attacked, hitting him twice before he was on his knees and said with his last breath, For Jesus and the church, I am ready to embrace death. After the knight dealt a final blow, he put his foot on the throat of Thomas Becket as a sign of victory over the archbishop. That is the exact same image we have of God in Micah 7.19. Not a victory over our enemies, though, but a victory over sin. He will again have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. God's boot will be on the throat, not of people, not of evildoers, but of sin. And the Lord will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. After Becket's death, 
He was quickly made a saint. His story was shared all over England, and the king reversed the laws that Becket opposed. Uh, The healing miracles that happened through him were told through beautiful stained glass windows in the Canterbury Cathedral known the world over. The knights who killed him were excommunicated, and they went to the Pope in Rome seeking forgiveness, and the Pope ordered them to serve in the Holy Lands for 14 years before they were restored to the church. Though his death was cruel and awful, his martyrdom brought so much good into the world. And you can do the same, not by forgetting every bad thing that happens to you, but by following the example of Jesus and Thomas Beckett. We don't live for ourselves. We give our lives as a sacrifice so that we might see the kingdom of God here on earth. We forgive so that we, can may, uh, that we may impact the world just as Jesus did in dying on the cross. Not for selfish gain, but to bring life to all. Amen? Amen. For everything happening at Grace check out our website at gumc.org.